Witness protection was established here in the United States in 1971. This is because the mafia, or rather mafia families, I guess, they regularly killed people who testified against them in the 60s in court. It became increasingly difficult to try to get someone to testify against one of these mafia families. It's not hard to see why. They feared for their life. They feared for the safety of their families. I would imagine that working for the mafia is a bit like being in bondage. Perhaps you're born into one of these families. You participated in crime, as you were told, but at some point you want out. You want to experience freedom, a life free of crime, one that is in safety. The only problem is there's only one way out, and you're not going to like the way it comes. Witness protection offers an escape, a type of freedom. You can testify in court against those who are committing evil, and you can be given a way out with the promise of safety. But of course, it's, it's not a complete freedom. There's kind of a contingency. You're only safe insofar as you can maintain you're completely free. You're always living in the fear of being found out. You're living in tension. Out of bondage, yes, but always the risk of returning. Genuinely free, but not yet completely free. Always the fear of return. The Christian, we've been told in the book of Galatians, was once in free under sin and the sway of Satan. We were held captive further still under the law, but we have now been redeemed by Jesus, the firstborn son. We are free. We are genuinely free. And yet, there ought to be in us, I think, a healthy fear of return to bondage. A fear of our old yoke of slavery, knowing that our old master will not give up until he has breathed his last. Not to mention we have this strange inclination in our flesh to beckon to his call to return to the yoke of slavery. The Christian is caught up in this tension of free now, the fullness of freedom later, the ever-present risk of returning to slavery. Paul picks up these themes today in Galatians chapter 5. If you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 6. Text reads this way For freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note, I, Paul, am at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. For we eagerly await through the Spirit by faith the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. Amen. You can be seated. Our text this morning is kind of a hinge in the book as we move from theology to application. If you're familiar with Paul's writings, you know that tends to be the case how he writes. Paul has been writing with painstaking clarity that it is by faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are justified before God. That is, our sins are forgiven, and we are given a righteous status. It comes simply by faith apart from works of the law. It is a gift given by God to man. And in the immediate context we've seen in the last chapter, last two chapters, Paul has been making an argument based on the covenants. It's an argument of slavery and freedom, Paul is arguing that the Mosaic law, which the Judaizers are saying saves, Paul's saying it's actually a form of slavery. 
You see, Israel was brought up out of slavery in Egypt, but when they were delivered the law, it didn't have the ability to bring them up out of slavery to sin. There's a sense in which it was a return to Egypt as Mount Sinai becomes Hagar to the Old Covenant. It's similar to Egypt's constant return to Egypt. It would actually put you outside of the covenant community, outside of the covenant of blessing. It would make you, once again, a slave, not a son, not a co-heir with Christ. We see the gospel is built upon a promise. It gives us the benefits of Jesus. Probably most distinctly that we were once slaves and we now become free sons and daughters. So the question we ask of the text this morning as we're making this move from theology to application is, how ought we to respond to the freedom we have in Christ? How should we respond to the freedom we have in Christ? I think we see three things in this text. We should live free, we should fear legalism, and we should love by faith. We should live free, we should fear legalism, and we should love by faith. First, we live free. Looking again at verse 1, Paul writes, For freedom Christ set us free. Now it's true that all of us in here have um, certain types of freedoms as Americans. It doesn't mean that we are necessarily set free, but what Paul's getting at here is that we have a... T- it means that we were once enslaved. Now, what type of slavery were we under? Paul's mentioned at least a few things in the book thus far. It's important to see that they're interrelated. The first that I think we should grasp is that we were once enslaved to Satan. Look back at chapter 4, verse 8. Paul writes... But in the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. But now since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back to weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? Friends, before we were freed by Christ, before we worshipped God, we were enslaved. We worshipped something. Whether or not we called it worship, whether or not we called that thing a God, We were enslaved to it. Satan used it, empowered it to keep us in bondage. Now that Christ has come, that we've believed upon him, we've been set free from Satan. We've transferred from his domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. Secondly, we were enslaved to sin. We see this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 22. It says, Scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power. Paul here is using the imagery of imprisoned, but it's getting at the same concept of slavery, that we were once held captive by our sin with the inability to get ourselves out of it. Not just its punishment, but we were held sway by our flesh. What the law required for us to love God and love others, we couldn't actually do. We see that being captive to sin, it's actually a fruit of being slave to Satan. It means having his, the opposite of freedom. But Jesus Christ has freed us from the power of sin. And thirdly, as Paul has been getting at in this section, we were once slaves under the law. Paul has been developing this over the last two chapters. Chapter 4 in particular, he tells us that Mount Sinai is Hagar, it's present Jerusalem, that she bears children into slavery. Now we've seen the law is like slavery because it demands perfection, but it doesn't give us the power to fulfill its commands and yet it rightly punishes us nonetheless. Now these aren't three kind of disparate places of slavery. Rather, under the law, we were held captive to sin because it enticed our flesh. 
and it couldn't give us the power to fight sin. The law, though good and holy and just, it aroused our flesh. We responded to do the bidding of our former master, Satan. Though it was a good thing, he used it as a tool of his to keep us enslaved. We were slaves to Satan, to sin, and we were under the law. But then something happens. Paul says that we have been freed. We have been redeemed. And it's not because we plotted some great escape. It's not because we've managed to get ourselves out of us. He came to rescue us, to deliver us from this present evil age. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Friends, it was a costly freedom. Christ Jesus redeemed us out from under the law by becoming the curse of the law. He upheld the covenant obligations, obeying perfectly on our behalf and yet being punished for our sins under the law. It is by his life, by his death, by his resurrection. Verse one, for freedom Christ set us free. Said differently, and this is what Paul is wanting us to see, I think, is that Christ freed us so that we would be free. You see, redemption is an economic term. I've explained it a couple times in here, kind of more with a biblical nuance in the buying of a slave to set them free. But more generally, the way it's used in the ancient Near East, redemption is the term for buying a slave. What you would do is you would buy a slave out of slavery for slavery. And what Paul is wanting us to see is that Christ Jesus did not redeem us out of slavery to bring us back into slavery. Rather, he has freed us that we might be free. Not from bondage to bondage, but from bondage to freedom. From slavery to sonship. Christ did not free you to bring you into more slavery. Not from Egypt to Egypt. He simply freed you in love. Friends, we have been freed not to return to slavery. God did not free us because he needed us. He didn't free you for your labor or your love. God freed you that you might experience freedom, that you might actually be free from the tyranny of your former master, that you might be freed from the bondage of the law and its inability to give life, that you might be free from the sting of death. You have been freed for freedom. Friends, do you believe that? Why do you think God saved you? Do you think he brought you up out of sin to, to enslave you once again? Are you inclined to believe that you were once freer before Christ? That he is actually more like a straitjacket on your life? Do you feel as though you are more free when you are in obedience or disobedience? Freedom can be a hard concept for us to understand, in part because we tend to think about freedom as autonomy and self-determination. Right, like I'm actually free when I can do as I please without external rule or constraint. I think this is most vividly seen in our culture right now, perhaps in one's desire to choose their own gender, their own pronouns. There is this complete railing against God, against creation, against family, against what perhaps feels like distant cultural values. And I don't mean to single these people out to pick on them, only to highlight what is especially acute in our culture right now. This is the same thing we do. This is how we think about freedom. It is to be free to choose what we think is good. But friends, moral autonomy is not freedom. It is slavery to sin. It is to be right where Satan would have you 
So when I say that Christ has freed us, that we might be free, I'm not saying that God doesn't care how we live or the kind of people that we are. He cares so much that he himself came to deliver us from Satan, from sin, from the law. Now we'll return to what freedom is and what it isn't when I preach on verse 13. But what we need to see here is that God has freed us that we might actually be free. Free from sin. Free from Satan. Free from the curse of the law. He has freed us so that we would live like free people. Paul then goes on. He says, stand firm then and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. We see here that though we are free, we are to live free. There's this ever-present risk of returning. These are some of the first commands in the book of Galatians. As Paul is telling us to stand firm, to not submit, we need to be on guard. We come now to our second point, which is we should fear legalism. Fear legalism. So not only do we live free, we experience the freedom that we have in Christ, but we should fear. Paul, of course, has in mind their intent to return to the law for justification. But the principle remains for any of us who would desire to be justified before God by our works. And even more broadly, we should fear any temptation to turn away from the only true gospel which can save to a false one. Friends, that is what happens when we add or subtract from the gospel. We turn to a false one. Turning to the law for salvation is a turn from freedom to slavery, precisely because it is a turn away from Christ. This is what we see there. Look at verse 2. Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if, if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Okay, now to remind us of the context, a group of Judaizers have gone to the churches in Galatia. They're likely preaching something like we hear in Acts 15, verse 1. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. They're saying salvation comes by faith and works, by grace and merit, by Jesus and our obedience to the law. Now this is actually, I'm not sure if you've noticed it, the first time that Paul has taken on circumcision head on. He mentioned it earlier when he spoke about Titus. Some brothers came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, he says, to spy on their freedom. They wanted Titus to be circumcised. Paul wouldn't do it. He says to do so would be to give in to their slavery. And the reason goes downstream for some things that are more fundamental. They need to understand that there are a couple different ways to relate to God for salvation. Only one of them will work. He's trying to explain that justification comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That it is a promise. It is received simply as we rest upon Jesus. As we believe him at his word. The law functions on a different principle. It says to do these things and live. Now that Paul has established the differences, he comes out and says it. Like, listen, if you get circumcised, you are going to cut yourself off from the only person who can save you, Jesus. The irony here is thick. I think that's what I love about Paul. He's kind of savage. But circumcision, it meant many things to um, the Israelites. One thing that it was intended to signify was that just as some of your skin was cut off, that if you break the covenant with God, you yourselves will be cut off from him and his people. So in a bit of irony, Paul is telling them that actually, if you turn to circumcision for justification, you will be the one cut off from God. You will be cut off from his people. You will actually be making your return to Egypt as you become Hagar's children. We also know from Deuteronomy chapter 10 and 
chapter 30, that circumcision was a sign that we needed a new heart. Like a little fleshly circumcision was not enough. We needed a heart transplant. And now that the reality has come, dwells in us. To turn back to that which could not save would be to cut yourself off from Jesus, the substance. You will get no Christ, no righteousness, no sonship. If you go through with circumcision for justification, you will find yourself without the benefits of Jesus. You know those two dudes who zealously got circumcised before before Paul's letter got there, thinking, oh shoot, (laughs) what have we done? What we see in the text here, though, is the exclusivity of Christ, right? That Jesus alone saves. But not only is he the only means by which we can be forgiven, not only is he the only means by which we can avoid the wrath to come and be ushered into eternal paradise, but there is only one means by which we come by his benefits. It is by being united to him through faith. It is not by works. It is not by faith and works. It is not mostly faith and some works. It is faith alone in Christ alone. It is not faith in baptism, not faith and the Lord's Supper, not faith and church. The finished work of Christ alone that will save us. Friends, his work is sufficient for every sinner in every possible world. There is nothing that you need to add. And in fact, as we see, to actually add anything to Christ's work is actually to turn away from his work to yours. Faith in Christ plus anything else will not save you. Salvation is either going to be all God and no you or all you and no God, period. There is only one means to come by this salvation. It is by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And so Paul goes on to say, if you get circumcised, it's not going to be enough. I'm going to go ahead and tell you on the front end, verse 3, again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You can't pick and choose. You've got to go the whole way. And it's because we've seen there are two fundamentally different principles found in the law and in the gospel. It bears repeating. You can look at Galatians 3.12. This is the principle of the law. Paul tells us it's not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. But you can't just do some of these things. You need to do all these things. Paul tells us there in Galatians chapter 3 as well, verse 10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. You see, circumcision will only perfectly, which you can't. It's as though Paul is saving them some trouble now. You can't keep the law. You need one to do it on your behalf. Friends, this is what has happened in the gospel, that God sent his son to be born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us up out of the law. But if you turn to circumcision, you are turning away from the only one who can save you. It would be to put yourself under the law, which requires you to keep the entire law. Luther put it well when he said the same principle by which you were obliged to receive circumcision obliges you to accept the whole law. There is no picking and choosing, no combining of faith and works for justification. If you're going to go the route of works, you've got to do it perfectly. We see the ramifications of doing so. Verse 4, you who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You 
have fallen from grace. You see, the Galatians actually know what they're doing. They're not thinking about circumcision, perhaps in the way that we would think about baptism or the Lord's Supper. They are actually turning to the law for justice. Perhaps an addition of faith in Christ would justify them before God. And Paul is wanting to make it abundantly clear that to turn to the law is to turn to a different gospel and it would cut you off from the only one who can save. You would be giving up his benefits. Friends, we cannot look both to ourselves and to Christ for justification. To trust in our works is actually to reject Jesus. We cannot add our works to his. Have you guys ever considered why? Like is God just being inflexible or rigid or stingy? Like why can we not just contribute a little bit to our justification? I can think of a couple reasons. The first is we have nothing to add. Nothing. Apart from Christ's mediation as our high priest, apart from the Spirit making us new creation, none of our deeds are good at all. They are like filthy rags. Salvation must come from the Lord and from Him alone. Friends, when we were in slavery, we weren't even trying to escape. We so loved our sin. Paul says, makes it clear in 221 that if we could act, if we could fulfill the law in such a way, there is nothing that we can contribute. There is nothing that we need to contribute. And secondly, I think this is important for us to grasp, one that we struggle with, that we need to realize that God will not allow us to boast before him on the day of judgment. Friends, for those of us who believe in Jesus and are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, when we are ushered into the fullness of the kingdom of God, there will be no confusion while we are there. We will look upon the lamb who has been slain for our sins and we will know that it is by grace, that it is a gift of God. Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter four that if we work, we earn. If we earn, we have reason to boast before God. Friends, that will not be the case when we make it to glory. I think what's remarkable is that God is going to generously, graciously allow us to participate in his glory. Like we will shine like the sun. We will be co-heirs with Christ. But not for a second will we think that the kingdom is ours because we deserve it. Part of what secures that is the fact that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. We simply receive as a gift what God has done. To earn by works is to boast in self. To believe is to boast in God. We have nothing to add. And we need not add. Jesus' work is sufficient. We simply come with empty hands, as Luther says, without works, simply to receive what God has done. Trust Him. Friends, I wonder deep down when you think about why you'll be justified before God. Is it Christ and Christ alone? Are you inclined to believe that his work might be insufficient for you? That like if God really presses you, why should I allow you into my kingdom? You've got a list of things that you could point to. Do you have some kind of backup plan to Christ? Friends, we, there is nothing that we need to look to for salvation other than Christ and to willfully turn to something else is to actually cut ourselves off from him, the only one who can save. We are, as we've borrowed from Philip Graham Ryken, recovering Pharisees. We've got this strange bend back toward the law to feel as though we need to work to boast before God in ourselves. It's, of course, one thing to struggle to believe the gospel, 
It's a struggle to believe that God really loves me by his free choice. That when he looks upon us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. It's one thing to struggle to believe that and an entirely different thing to turn to something else for salvation, to willfully add or subtract from the gospel. This is what the Judaizers have done and what they're pushing the Galatians to do. We see here that to change the gospel is actually to abandon Christ altogether. We cannot have part of it right. We must have all of it right. Even Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection for sinners like us. To turn to a different gospel is actually to turn away from Christ, to find yourself alienated from him, to find yourself cut off from the realm of grace, back into bondage and slavery. It is to lose his benefits. Now, I think this again brings up the tension for us of perseverance. If we are in Christ, how can Paul be speaking to them in this manner, that if they turn to the law, they will be alienated from Christ, they will be cut off from grace? I won't belabor the point here on perseverance. I would encourage you to listen to my sermon on Galatians 4, 8 through 20. I just want to remind us that salvation is a gift of God. What he has begun in his people, he will indeed finish. He will, as we just sang, lead us by his hand. From here, through death, through the Jordan. Friends, if you are in Christ, you will persevere to the end. The Father has written your name in the book of life before you were born, and he won't need to erase it after you die. The Son spilled his blood for you, and it works. The Spirit seals upon you, and it will not loosen. If you are in Christ, he is in you. You have been clothed with Jesus. If you are a Christian, you will persevere, and it is your perseverance to the end that most clearly demonstrates that you are a Christian. We need to understand if we turn to a different gospel, if we change our gospel, we will cut ourselves off from the only one who can save. And if we never return to Christ through repentance and faith, we will demonstrate that we never actually believed in the first place. We need to feel a healthy degree of fear of our own inclination back to persevere. We need to hear him rightly though, He's not calling us to double down on works for salvation. This is not, oh, if I don't persevere, I won't be saved. I need to work harder. No, this is the call to continue looking to Christ in faith. This is the call to look away from ourselves to Jesus, the only one who can save. Friends, if you look to yourself for perseverance, you most surely will not make it. We are to look to the one who guides us by his own hand, the one to whom we've been united to by faith. So the Christian lives in this tension. We are genuinely free now, but we're fully free later. We should always be living on guard with the healthy degree of fear, knowing that one seeks to re-enslave us, that our flesh desires to beckon to his call. We should be painfully aware of our own disposition to wander from the one who loved us and saved us. We should live free. We should have this healthy fear of legalism. We should also love by faith. This, we begin in verse 5. Paul writes, For we eagerly await through the Spirit by faith the hope of righteousness. Now this stands in contrast to what we saw in verses 2 and 4, that rather than turning to the law for justification, we are waiting by faith through the spirit for righteousness the hope you see justification as we talk about it it's a declaration of god 
where God declares that we have been forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. He declares that we are as righteous as the Son. People like us, at the same time sinner and righteous. God is not lying. This is not legal fiction. We have been united to His Son such that when the Father looks at us, He sees the righteousness of Jesus. When He looks upon the Son on the cross, He sees our sins atoned for once and for all. Friends, when we first repent and believe, God declares us righteous, and we take Him at His word. His own spirit inside of us testifies to the fact that we are free and forgiven. But one day, when God through his Son and by his Spirit judges the world, we will hear the verdict that we have longed to hear for since the day we were saved. God will look upon you and he will shout, righteous. It will echo into eternity. He will say, come into my kingdom, my precious daughters, my treasured sons. You are righteous. Friends, we are righteous now, and yet it's wishy-washy like our, our lunch plans or afternoon plans because of the rain. It is solid because the righteousness that we are waiting upon is Jesus. It is anchored in the sun. It is to him we look now from the day we were saved until the day we live. We don't work for righteousness. We wait for it. We wait for it by faith. But that doesn't mean that our faith doesn't work. It does. It goes to work in love. Look at verse 6. Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. Like if you are in Christ, circumcision doesn't matter. Neither does uncircumcision. They accomplish nothing. They're fleshly. They're external. They're passing away. They're distinctions of the old regime. Now, this isn't to confuse what Paul has been saying. If you try to get circumcised for justification, then it does matter. You find yourself cut off. But Paul is saying, look at the beginning of the verse, it's it's carrying a lot of weight. For in Christ, if we are in Christ, then these distinctions don't matter. There is no Jew or Gentile. There is no male or female, slave or free. There is no position of privilege before God. And there ought not to be one in here. You see, it cuts both ways. Being a Jew does not privilege you. Well, neither does being a Gentile. Temporary, that it, it, functioned, it had a specific function in time in that it provoked sin to prepare the way for the Savior. Ethnic Israel, as this geopolitical state, its place in redemptive history has come to a close as Jesus himself has fulfilled its vocation. We become a part of this true Israel now by being united to him, by believing upon him, we become the offspring of Abraham, the children of Sarah. It would be tempting, I think, for the Gentiles now to look down upon their Jewish brothers and sisters as though there's almost been a reversal of fortune. It's better to be a Gentile than the Jews. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. If you are in Christ, circumcision doesn't accomplish anything, neither does uncircumcision. They don't do anything. They don't help you. They don't hurt you. There is one thing that matters, and we see it in verse 6. What matters is faith working through love. Again, we don't work for righteousness. We wait for it, but our faith does go to work. It works through love. Faith is like the rich soil that love flowers out of. Now, a quick point of clarity, I think, just because of this section It's important to see that faith comes first. 
that we are justified because we believe in Jesus, not because we believe and love Jesus. It is by faith alone that we look away from ourselves to Christ to trust him, to rest upon him, to wait upon his righteousness. It is not our love of him that saves us, but his love of us. Now, I mention this also because the Roman Catholic Church springs forth out of love. The reformers are quick to say no, that love in that sense is a work. It's a virtue. Faith is being rewarded by your love. There's a change in this person which brings forth faith. It confuses the fruit and the root. Friends, if in faith we cling to Christ and he will produce by his spirit the fruit of love in us. It's not only possible, it's inevitable. It can't not. It's interesting, I think, that Paul singles out love. He's about to, later on in this chapter, speak about the fruit of the Spirit. But he says that one thing matters, and it's faith working through love. Why love? Well, if you think about it, the object of our faith is love itself. John tells us in 1 John 4, 16 that God is love. And the more we behold the God of love by faith, the more we become like him. The more we respond like him, the more we act like him, the more we treat others in the way that he would. It is inevitable that you become like the ones you admire, the ones you worship, right? Whether it's your father or mother, an athlete or an artist, if you fixate yourself on someone long enough, you will become like them. Friends, the whole of our being ought to be fixated upon God in faith, such that the love of God bursts forth out of us. Friends, we ought to be a people of love because God himself is love. The message that we believe is a message of love, that God in love would save sinners. Friends, how sad when the people of God are not known to be a people of love, but rather one of hatred. When we, in hypocrisy, reflect the hatred of the world rather than the love of God. We have to begin first by fixating ourselves upon God. His love for us is seen in the gospel, and it ought to produce a love in us, a love for each other. I think there's another reason why faith comes first, and it's because with the coming of faith, we've moved from slavery to freedom. Look down at verse 14. Paul says, the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. We see the whole of the law can be summarized as this. We would add to it, love God under slavery of sin, Satan, even the law itself, that we lack the ability to actually genuinely love others. We couldn't muster in ourselves love of God and people. Well, now that we've moved from the old covenant to the new, now that we've moved from the present evil age to the new creation, is this possible? It is inevitable. It is necessary. The spirit of love resides in us such that it bubbles over into love. It's as though he takes the verdict of righteousness and he works it into our hearts. We ought to be not only a loved people, but a loving people. Now, this doesn't mean that it's easy. It's not automatic. Notice that Paul says faith works. It works through love. It's easy to say there's no circumcision or uncircumcision. It's easy to say there's no position of privilege in our church based on ethnicity or race or gender. Those things are easier said than done. 
It requires faith going to work to produce love. I'm going to riff off our brother Mark Catlin a little bit. He preached at the evening service. If you weren't there, you can pretend this is original to me. Faith is necessary for love, not just because it unites us to the God of love, not just because we fix our eyes upon the God of love, but because we need faith to believe what God has said about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Be them ethnic or gender or socioeconomic, class distinctions. Does not the world invite us to take vengeance into our own hands when we sin against each other? Well, by faith, we're saying that we're going to believe what God has said instead. Like, they might not look like me. Their preferences and culture might be different than mine, but I'm going to, by faith, believe that God is their creator. That they reflect him in a way that I even do not. They may have sinned against me when they said this or did that, but I'm going to, by faith, believe what God has said about them, that they are holy. They are righteous. They are free from accusation. I'm going to believe by faith that Jesus Christ has dealt with their sins once and for all just as he dealt with mine. I'm going to treat them in faith, which is to say I'm going to treat them in love. I'm going to look over their sins. NBC, I wonder, is faith working through love in our own lives? Are you more loving today than the day you first believed? I would encourage you to ask someone who knows you well, if you are more loving today than the day you first believed, ask them how you treat people who are differently than you. Ask them how you treat those who sin against you. Is your faith in God working through love? Friends, we could know all things. We could have faith such that we move mountains. We could sing until the chapel shakes, but if we have not love, friends, it is not easy. Faith must go to work, and it works in love. We see here that it's actually when we live in love that we experience real freedom. Sometimes I think we think it's a more freeing thing to sin when we fly off with our mouth, when we're loose with our tongue, with our thoughts, when we choose to hold grudges. Friends, that's not freedom. That is slavery to sin. Real freedom is found. It comes by faith, and it's evidenced in the way that we love each other, that we actually have the ability now by Christ and his spirit to do good to each other. We see that faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It produces love such that the church is a community of love, caught up in the love of God itself. You see, when the world looks at here, it shouldn't just see something different. It should see something heavenly. That as our eyes are fixated upon the throne of heaven, that we here experience the love of heaven. We have been freed by faith. It is by faith that we continue to persevere to the only gospel who saves, and it is by faith that we love one another just as God himself has loved us. That is to experience true freedom. May it be the case for us. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for your loving kindness toward us, that you have freed us in your son to set us free, that you have not delivered us once again to bondage, but you have brought us up out of bondage, Father, I pray that as a church we indeed would stand firm, that we would not submit again to the yoke of slavery, that we would be painfully aware of our own inclination to add to or subtract from the gospel, that we would be aware of our own inclination to boast before you. Father, we pray that we would continue, that we would do so in such a way that love itself would be produced among your people. It is in the name of your Son and by your Spirit we pray. Amen.